he deals with art direction in a way like narrative content, the color palette. I mean, it's very psychological how he thinks about, you know, like what colors characters are wearing in something like Vertigo, for instance, you know, there's those little animation sequences, you know, that don't really appear in other parts of the film or in Marnie, the way that the the frame becomes red, you know, when Marnie is having a breakdown. I just feel like he actually, for someone who's a very a commercially successful filmmaker, his films also really experimented, I think, with the visual language. So I appreciate that. But I mean, the influence of someone like David Lynch is is real. A yes. lot of the reviews for Knives and Skin obviously bring up Twin Peaks, but I feel much more influenced by something like Blue Velvet or mm. um, Lost Highway or even an early, you know, I mean, Eraserhead. I like David Lynch. I went to art school. I didn't go to film school. So I feel like I've always given myself a lot of liberties to experiment with the visual language. I mean, we're making cinema, right? I mean, it's right. it's a visual medium. You mentioned, obviously, you started at art school not film school, take us on the path of finding your voice through the medium of film and why that ended up making sense for you to go that way as well. I say sometimes that I'm like the impossible love child of um, Maya Darren, who was a dancer and an experimental filmmaker in the 40s and later, and uh, Steve McQueen, who now makes feature films, Hunger, Widows, 12 Years a Slave. But he also started out making moving image projects in a gallery museum context. So I had been a ballet dancer for a long time. I started taking art classes in college, a sculpture class in particular, because I thought, I bet that's where the misfits are. You know, those, <laughs> I, I'm going to find my, I'm going to find my, um, your tribe, my tribe <laughs> in the art department. But I was a terrible sculptor. I just couldn't, you know, everything fell apart or fell over and um, or I couldn't move it out of the classroom. And so my instructor at that point said, you're never going to be a, a, a sculptor, but, you know, I, I know that you have a background as a dancer. So there's a woman who's teaching a performance art class next semester. You know, you might want to check that out. So I took that class. It was not I didn't connect with the performance aspect of it, but we had to videotape the we had to like document the performances. And really, the minute that I picked up a video camera and at that point, it really was a video camera, like a big VHS camera. <laughs> I felt like I had recovered a, a phantom limb in a way. You know, it was really, it felt like an extension of sort of my heart and mind. And I loved being able to be both behind the camera and in front of the camera. And I didn't need a big crew. I didn't need a lot of lights. So I really fell in love with the ability to create and recreate my own image, but to really investigate the world around me through the lens of a camera and, and kind of invent stories and invent people and scenarios and little worlds. I took one conventional filmmaking class where I was the only woman in the class and had to run the slate. There's nothing wrong with running the slate. It's a very important part of a film set, you know, but I was like, no, 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 I can. I want to be the writer or the director. I want to be this, you know, I want to be the um, DP. And I just didn't feel like that was actually going to be the sort of path for me in that kind of conventional film school model. And so right after that class, I bought my own camera and then. In a way, the rest is history. I sort of never looked back and I get asked a lot or there's an assumption that I started out as a, you know, as a PA and then kind of worked up through there to be a director. And I've really never been on anyone else's film set. I mean, maybe as a visitor, but I started off as my own singular kind of filmmaking sweatshop. You know? <laughs> That's um, great, though. My crew is bigger now. Now, you know, and I'm no longer in front of the camera. But I really taught myself how to write. I taught myself how to direct at that time, I was also working at an art house movie theater in central Ohio. And so I also did what I think a lot of filmmakers do. I just watched tons and tons and tons of movies and really broke them down and and became obsessed and watched them again and 
and use that as a as a tool to figure out both what I wanted to do, but and also what I didn't want to do. Let's talk about knives and skin. It's a very layered, transportive, and magical journey with a dark whimsy, but it's grounded in so much reality that it can be both nurturing and overwhelming at the same time. (laughs) To you, what is the film about? To me, the film is about, in a way, human, the human condition, human coping and human connection. I mean, it's an ensemble cast. We meet almost everyone when they're in the middle of some kind of coming of age, Mm -hmm. both the young people, which is in their sort of normal biological coming of age. The adults in an even more robust coming of age that, of course, in a world outside of Knives and Skin, we call it a midlife crisis, which is a really negative way to say, oh, I'm changing the course of my life as I should be allowed to do. And I wanted to use genre in a way like the horror and thriller as a kind of a curtain to enter into a conversation around female empowerment, violations of consent among young girls the unspeakable horror of not knowing where your child is Mm -hmm, or not knowing where a loved one is. So it's about sort of everyday trauma, everyday worry that can really turn into monumental psychosis. And I also wanted to try and make um, a feminist film that had a missing girl at its plot center, you know, which has been a trope for so many horror and thriller films. And oftentimes it's problematic Women have been the subject of horror and thriller almost exclusively. Yeah. I just wanted to to sort of mine that and claim it and flip it, you know? And so my missing girl, Carolyn Harper, has will and agency. I don't want to give too much away about her, her condition, right. but she has will and agency. She's not quite a zombie. She's not quite a ghost, but it always comes back to it being her her story, which felt really important. And her story that has this way of vibrating through the emotional fabric of of all of the characters and really allowing them to transform and to evolve and to reconnect. So mothers reconnect with daughters, friends reconnect with friends, husbands reconnect with wives and and vice versa. And they're all kind of connected to this bigger universe in in which t-shirts talk and head wounds glow. Yes, (laughs) that's a great way of describing it. What creative freedoms does that playground of the teen film genre offer you as a creator? There are so many elements to work with in that trope, right? Absolutely. I love the teen film as a filmmaker for a lot of reasons. A, the characters, I mean, teenagers themselves are just, you know, as I mentioned before, biologically in transition. You know, their character arcs are arcing every (laughs) five minutes. That's a real situation. Right. So... You can really develop very complicated characters in teenagers, you know, and they're also experiencing so many things for the very first time, you know, so you can also develop these also very dimensional characters because no matter what you give them, it's like they're responding to it for the very first time. You know, very few teenagers. Well, I mean, we think that they are that they are unimpressed with the world. But my experience is that they're very impressed with the world and sort of overwhelmed with all of the newness that they're mm-hmm. experiencing on right. a daily basis. And so their blank faces are more like just intense processing of all of the newness. So that's cool. But because adolescence is a time when we really are experimenting with our identity, right? We're trying on new skins in the form of fashion, makeup, hair, what music we're listening to, what books we're reading, what movies we are watching. Like I said, production design is deeply important to me as an, as narrative content. So with a teen film, I can kind of load it up with lots of 
music and experiments with, you know, hair, makeup, wardrobe in terms of like props, like thinking about what they're reading or in terms of even kind of film, other film references, yeah. whether they're real or made up, depending on some kind of copyright, you know, <laughs> you can really kind of load it up with lots of visual and kind of intellectual culture because it really is what is kind of swirling around and within those teen characters. One of the first things you notice when you watch the movie is the experience of light and color that you're offering through this adventure. The reds and the purples are so rich that they actually look like you can reach into the screen and that they'd be wet if you touch them. It really becomes ultra sensory and enhances everything. Where do you find power in that world to enrich the storytelling? Well, I've always, again, been drawn to films that don't discount lighting, for instance, mm. as a way to to draw an audience into that world and actually to create a very specific kind of world that you don't have to engage with it because you know it directly and personally, sure. you know, right. but you can really kind of sink into a world that does feel pretty fantastical. I wanted I wanted the world of Knives and Skin to hover just above reality, but to still be grounded enough in reality that you could connect with those characters, but that you really are going into this kind of magenta wormhole, you know, on some level. And of course, like we were looking at lots of sort of like giallo films, the kind of color palette used in those films and that right. sort of like fantastical deep reds and greens. And we were looking at the cinematography of um, someone like Robbie Mueller, who also, you know, used a lot of colored lighting. We, we looked at a lot of fine art photography and even a lot of painting, you know, to think about the use of light and color in painting and photography. So that our influence was wide. But I also wanted the film to sort of vibrate with a kind of femme or feminine energy, which is like this magentas and, and purples and even the kind of cyans. I don't mean to be binary. Nobody nobody owns pink and purple. You know? it's like, <laughs> right. um, but I, I wanted the film to really to sort of vibrate with the kind of pinkness that I think some of the girls in the film are talking about. You know, this, there's this reoccurring kind of pink lace dress, yes. which in a way can kind of um, epitomize a kind of girlhood aspiration, mm -hmm. one that I never had necessarily, you know. But I felt like pink was kind of emblematic on some level, you know, and I really wanted it to be like super pink. <laughs> right? <laughs> and we shot with these beautiful Tadeo vintage anamorphic lenses, Oh, cool! you know, which really meant that you had to really fill the whole frame. Yes. And if you don't mm -hmm. fill the whole frame with people, you know, you can really fill it with these like pools of light and the way that the lens itself picks up that light. It just also adds to something that it really kind of splinters the light in a very atmospheric way. So you really feel like you are going through the kind of mist of this unknown unreal town that all these people live in there was some really cool costumes and makeup and i really loved all that did you keep any of the costumes i do i have we have all of the costumes that's awesome wow that's so cool yeah we have all of the costumes partially that was because in a previous film a lot of the costumes and the props left set on the last day because they're people things that people wanted and then we couldn't we had to scramble around when we had to do reshoots we have various stages of um, Carolyn's band uniform. We have my favorite outfit, which was um, Charlotte, who's the African-American goth yes. punk girl. Yes. Who, when she's delivering her book report, is in a kind of bloody bride's dress. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Cool. That's my favorite. That exists. We have a, um, let's call it a 
revised uh, Letterman jacket. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how to, mm-hmm. or an enhanced, an enhanced letter yeah, jacket. I'll, I'll that. <laughs> that exists. Beaver mascot. I have all of the the shirts that Joanna makes that have all of the kind of feminist heroes. Yeah, we've we've got all of that stuff. That's really that's cool. so awesome. Yeah, we kept all of it, and also the props. I mean, there was a a book that one of the well, there's two books that characters are reading. One is a, a book that's called Knives and Skin. Yes. I wanted the the film to feel a little meta, like maybe. That you're actually watching a graphic novel, something like this. Oh, you know? cool. Right. If you don't get that, that's totally fine. But I wanted there to be a little meta moment where one of the characters is reading a book, Knives and Skin. And there's another character reading a book that just is that's called Blood Below the Skin, which is reference to the short film that you mentioned earlier. Um, and it says the history of suffrage in Ohio or something. I had to give it some I'm context. Ohio, yeah, yeah, right. And I wanted to make it feel like it was this book that was this very seminal kind of feminist book when in fact it, the book doesn't exist at all. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's easier to sort of make stuff up than try to get the rights to, to real books. And, and um, yeah, I could go on and on. We have, I will also say we have a whole Tupperware container of little tiny objects from the bathroom scene. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so yeah, everything still exists. So maybe you, you let me know what you're most interested in and, you oh. know, and have awesome. a, a secret package might, might arrive <laughs> that to add to your wow. collection. Awesome. <laughs> you know, I was really uh, fascinated with the way you wrote this movie as the, uh, all the dialogue between the characters, especially the high school kids. It's so different. It's very, it's very ominous in tone. It's very, you don't know where it's going to go. It's just, it seems weird at times, you know, but I was really curious in terms of all these actors, what did you give them to research? Did you tell them anything? Hey, watch these movies or research this for the roles, for the lines they were going to deliver? There was a weird snafu in getting the, the actor's contracts done ahead of time. And so we didn't have any rehearsal time or we didn't even have a um, a table reading. Really? So I just had to kind of cross my fingers and hope that people came to set, at least knowing the their the dialogue, knowing their lines, right? Okay. And with the young people, of course, like their instinct was to go melodramatic. So there's a scene when Jesse, who's in the beaver costume, is talking to Joanna at the football game. Yes. And their first instinct running that was sort of just was really melodramatic and, you know, kind of over the top and kind of after school special in a way that that was not what I intended. So I kept saying less affect, less affect, bring it down, deadpan, deadpan. You guys don't even have to look at each other when you're delivering those lines because there's a lot of melodrama in the lines. There's a lot of melodrama in that scene because something gets revealed at the end of that scene. Great. And so I just wanted the the emotions in that scene. I thought in really so many of the more emotional scenes that the melodrama existed in the sort of tension between those characters themselves rather than the character letting you know this is an, a melodramatic moment. You know, this is, I am hysterical. You know, I think that even though I'm, I know that the dialogue feels awkward and not tethered necessarily to reality, I actually think that in reality, in our most emotional moments, it's not as though you run into a room and you point to your spouse and say, I want a divorce. Right. You know, I mean, sadly, those, or not sadly, but those conversations are much more, can be much more tense. Like you quietly say, I'm leaving, you know, and then, yeah all of the air gets slowly sucked out of the room and it becomes a real life sort of horror moment, the most terrifying moment of your life. So I wanted to build tension, not around melodramatic performances, but around a sequence of kind of emotional buildup. I feel like the film is funny in a way that not everybody finds so funny necessarily in the awkwardness of, and the mistake making of the characters and how you don't expect a scene to end where it does. Someone told me recently that they liked that my film doesn't have any round edges. You know, I think they were saying that 
you you start down one path in one of the scenes and all of a sudden it kind of loop-de-loops and you end up in the middle of the quarry or you know <laughs> right. and i really appreciate that and that's how I, I write i always make sure that each one of my scenes has some kind of punchline and i don't mean that that necessarily has to be funny but it has like a reveal it has a, a sort of a, a an emotional moment of um that's sort of a surprising emotional moment something expected happens even if it's something that's a visual something visual not necessarily with the dialogue we cast the entire film out of Chicago. Those are all very accomplished theater actors and some even improv comedians. And I feel like with theater people who are used to doing things live, they really can call up a change in performance so quickly. And even though they, they have memorized the lines, if I say, no, no, let's take it in a totally different direction, it doesn't take them an hour to kind of reprep that. They're like, okay, here we go. Mm. It was fantastic working with them. And, and I do think that theater actors can be kind of bold. I mean, they're also really used to performing live in front of an audience which even for i think a lot of film actors can be terrifying i mean they can act in front of a camera but you get them in front of a a huge group of people and they and they freeze up so there's a real boldness and a risk taking with the theater actors in this film that i took advantage of good point yeah knives and skin also has these poignant musical moments throughout that yes. were very unexpected but absolutely delightful the first song that we hear the girls sing is uh, the Go-Go's, Our Lips yeah. Are Sealed. Yeah. <laughs> and in the framework of the film and where it falls in the presentation in context of everything that's going on, lyrically, the song takes on an entirely new meaning and becomes almost unrecognizable until the chorus, right? right? right. <laughs> so when you strip away that instrumentation of these, these acapella songs, you're left with the poetry of, of the words of these songs that you have obviously carefully chosen. Those songs end up becoming their true selves in this film, which I think is a beautiful thing. What are the secrets of creating the musical world for this? That's a great question. And that I've experimented with my previous shorts, which, which by the way, are all free to the public on Vimeo. So if you go to my Vimeo page and you're curious about what shorts I've done prior to Knives and Skin, you can check those out. And I've experimented with people singing in the shorts. Um, and those films have done really well. They've gone to Sundance, Berlin, London, etc. So I knew that there was an audience for people singing rearranged pop songs, mm -hmm. oftentimes by a, in a like a choral rearrangement. I love an infectious poppy song, you know, but I also like being able to slow that song down, rearrange it like a lamentation, a lullaby, a eulogy even, and being able to to deliver to the audience, right, those lyrics as a kind of poem and as a scene that's actually full of pathos, emotional pathos. So exactly. I mean, I, and it was very important that the first song that everyone hears sing is this Our Lips Are Sealed, which of course is like a great song in its original form. You're driving with the windows down yeah, exactly. just jamming out but in knives and skin when it's sung by this group of girls all these beautiful synchronous teen female voices and they're really talking about a kind of solidarity in a way they're saying like we have to stick together because no one else will protect us we have to stick together it's a battle cry on some level mm -hmm. and i wanted the film to really start off with that sentiment you know that really because at the end it's the girls who come back together to save themselves and to really save their parents. The songs I chose were had a lot to do with how does how do those songs support this message of of not just female empowerment, but a kind of youth empowerment or a kind of human empowerment and suggest that no matter what mistakes you make, whether it's as a young person or as an adult, there is redemption. I mean, you can learn from your mistakes and, and move on. You don't just have to that doesn't have to be your identity for the for the rest of your life. And the songs also for me because there's so much there's so many characters in this film there's a lot of threads to follow the songs also feel like a way to give an audience a moment to kind of pause and think about okay what just happened 
who said that, right. what's happening next. You know, it just felt like these little tiny intermissions, you know, where you also get to understand that in this kind of chaotic world of Knives and Skin, there is still beauty, synchronicity, harmony. You know, I think that the singing scenes are really have a lot of emotional, a lot of emotionality, but a lot of beauty and and just the kind of presenting a singing human voice is just the simplicity of that reminds us also that, you know, we need to be a little nicer to each other. When Promises, Promises comes on, it's mm-hmm. chills. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I, I noticed that these other songs, Melt With You by Modern English, Bloom Monday by New Order, Promises, Promises by Naked Eyes, and uh, Girls Just Want to Have Fun by Cindy Lauper. These are all 80s songs. Mm-hmm. Why the 80s? Well, I mean, it's part of my own autobiography. I was a teenager in the I was, you know, coming of age in the in the 80s. And so those are songs of my own autobiography. But I also think of it's going back to the question about like kind of the teen film. I, mean, I think about the 80s as kind of like the golden era of teen films in a way, even though there's been some great teen films that have been made since then. It's a little autobiographical. It's a little bit of a nod to the teen films. And it's also in a way the um, era of the of the adults. And so there's this kind of transfer of, you know, they sort of inherit maybe a love for sure. certain songs through that yeah, yeah no that makes sense cool and, you know and also these songs made me think of a paul thomas anderson film mm-hmm. a magnolia yes absolutely i mean i really love magnolia but when that sort of synchronous singing yes. scene comes on in magnolia i'm sure that's a scene that's very polarizing some people probably hate it i um, loved it and i was obsessed just thought wow what i mean it's a very simple thing but just to sort of thread all those characters together with this one song right. that was a kind of it sort of was both part of the music production and then it becomes diegetic because the, they're singing to it. I mean, it's a, such a weird mo- it's such a kind of a non sequitur sort of moment, but it also brings all those characters together in a right. really necessary way. And so I had wanted to do that for other films. and I couldn't quite figure it out. So when it came to this film, the promises, promises scene, you know, when I sort of figured out how to do that. I really was like, yes, finally. (laughs) That was great. Because I do think a lot of filmmakers, you know, you see a film, or it could be anybody, a writer, a painter, a musician. There's things that you you experience and you think, dang it, I wish I had done that. And so sometimes I have to, you have to recreate it just to sort of experience it yourself or to kind of exercise it from your psyche. And uh, yeah, I was, I feel very happy with that scene. I thought the hologram Princess Leia line was genius. Yes, it was. I love that. <laughs> thanks. It was thanks. a great context to hear that line <laughs> right. in too. Yeah. 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 Was, yeah. Renee asked, talking about needing help. Right. right. Yeah. No. Right. And she's a character who cues very indirect. I will also won't reveal much about her, but she's having a hard time being really real with right. herself and her family. Mm-hmm. And so even in that moment when she has to say, I messed up. I need help. She has to sort of do it through the lens of another woman. That's true. All right. Well, uh, we have to wrap it up. Jennifer's uh, on to the next thing. Thank you so much for joining us. Knives and Skin in theaters, VOD and digital, December 6th. It's a journey you must experience for yourself. Thank you again. Yes. Thanks, Boo thank Crew. This was a great conversation. Awesome. Oh, thank, thank you. you. That was a Boo Crew podcast, episode 88. Special thanks to our guest, Jennifer Reader. Follow her at the Jennifer Reader on Instagram and at Jennifer Reader on Twitter. Check out Knives and Skin, a time of release available in theaters, VOD and digital through IFC Midnight on December 6th. Production tracks for this episode provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying, see you on the other side. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us 
us on Twitter at Tales from the Moon. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew, for horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy, for disturbing and terrifying creepypastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.